Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanggang namasami In presenting the Dhamma, the Buddha's presentation is very rich and thorough and uh, holistic approach. That is it. It's not just the one shot. It's not just the one system or or one technique. It's not just a, a meditation instruction. It's not uh, just about dealing with things on a psychological internal level. It's about the way we live who we associate with, how we think things through, how we do, how we carry out our duties with care and attention, what's suitable, what's not suitable, how we spend our time, how we learn living, how we learn dying, how we learn looking after each other. And all of this um, being a proper, full, balanced human being is the, is the uh, message, really. <laughs> And so I think it's very helpful because often people, when they come to what they call spiritual practice, will take one piece and just try to develop that on its own. So maybe just developing meditation on its own. And then even though one can perhaps sometimes be quite calm or tranquil or steady in meditation, it doesn't stand up outside of the meditation technique or the system we find ourselves unbalanced or we tend to get very sort of self-absorbed in our thoughts and feelings and emotions and psychology and history and karma and it becomes like suddenly you know one's personal story becomes the only story in town the only thing that we ever look at is just my thoughts my feelings my moods my history, my problems, my afflictions, my suffering, as if there's nobody else on the planet. And this isn't really healthy either. Because, yeah. of course, you can directly deal with your own stuff in a way, but your own stuff is also meshed with how you are with others and how you care for and can have concern for others. And that sense of seeing oneself in a larger perspective has a very remedial effect on one's own mind. As you probably remember that uh, renowned uh, story of the Kisa Gotami, the woman whose baby died, newborn baby died, and she went to the Buddha and said, how do I, you know, can you bring my baby back to life? Can you solve my suffering? And the Buddha said, well, I think I can help you. And he said, well, just go down to the village and get a mustard seed. And that will just bring me one mustard seed. 
So said, oh great, that's all I have to do. He said, yeah, just a minute, just get a mustard seed from a house that nobody, nobody has died in. Just bring one, one seed from a house that nobody has ever died in. So, oh, okay. So he rushes down to the village. Can I have a mustard seed? Sure. Oh, has anybody ever died in your house? Oh, yeah, my father died last year. Oh, okay. Next door. Doc, doc. Mustard seed. Yeah, sure. Mustard seed. Has anybody died in your house? Yeah, my uncle passed away last week. Next house. Oh, please don't, don't remind me of my grief. My wife died yesterday. Yeah. Next house. Oh, my, my own, my only child died last month. Next house. Yeah, my grandparents passed away last year. Next house. Yeah, my cousin, my sister, my aunt, my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband. Goes to the whole village, everybody. And as she comes through this process, she realizes, well, you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> and just that recognition of seeing one's own suffering in the context of the universal one suddenly it's no longer poor me with my terrible story you realize everybody has to bear this and suddenly just through realizing that you know your heart your mind widens and that widening and that you know thoroughness and that widening to more holistic sense you come to your senses. You're right here. Yeah, this is this is where we are. Okay, pain. So, you know, mine, yours, his, hers. Everybody's got it. Defilements. Mine, yours, his, hers. Everybody has it. Mess ups in their past. Mine, yours, his, hers. Everybody has it. <laughs> you know, being hurt, being spoken to unkindly. She is. He is. They are. We are. You know, everybody gets it. And suddenly, you know, the tragedy becomes much more like, well, this is the human experience, isn't it? Or part of it. And then there's also the aspirations, my interests, my enthusiasm are no longer so, we don't get so inflated with them. How special and wonderful my creations are. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, but there's a lot of good stuff around also. So it just keeps to balance it out. And just seeing oneself in a much wider perspective really take some of that um, obsessiveness yeah. you know, and this is where which isn't just really we lose balance with that we lose the breadth this is what self-view is about you know the loss of loss of breadth and we lose capacities we lose tolerance we lose patience we lose discernment and true understanding when our mind narrows down into this particular Self-view. So, you know, the Buddha, when he t- taught, taught Dhamma. And Dhamma itself means something like, comes from the word to a support, or something that bears, or something that, um, like a, a, bear, a controlling, or you could say a law, uh, in the cosmos, like a foundational principle that sustains the manifest cosmos. You know, a truth or a Tao sometimes express it like that you know, and so this, this is what the word means it means there's a whole, whole there's a system or a principle in which if we find that everything in our lives comes into balance and order it's the pivot the hub around which our, which our life finds um, centers our life and this is what Dharma means why 
in Buddhism you always have not just one factor but eight factors of a path or Sila Samadhi Panya three factors or seven of these or five of these you always have these numbers because it's about how a variety of, of practices and factors and ways of looking at things comes together to provide this balance. Just as we don't exist separately or individually without, without in an isolated context, so no factor of the path can exist in an isolated context. Everything in the path, everything in the training relates to and meets and supports every other factor. If it doesn't, then we're not practicing correctly. So we, we get to understand this. You can look into almost any of these teachings and see how in the in the blending and the and the meeting of of, of uh, different ways of looking at things, you find a holistic balance. That's why it's even you start to think of Dharma as being spiritual. That isn't. That narrows it down too. Because spiritual, we tend to think of spiritual as being quite a kind of refined level of consciousness or even purely internal or metaphysical or ethereal. Spiritual doesn't really occur as a concept in Buddhism. You have perhaps the uh, uh, nearest thing to it is nisamisa, which means not associated with uh, fleshly or corporeal or worldliness. But it's really, it's not about spiritual or it's about being a proper human being. <laughs> yeah. Which, okay, you, know, you can call it spiritual if you like, but uh, because it, it involves a lot of integrity and a lot of uh, training and a lot of clarity and a lot of uh, discernment. For example, the Buddha gave advice to uh, uh, business or householders, saying this is how you manage your household affairs. Particular factors you have to bear in mind. Uh, One occasion he he talked of uh, being four, four factors which support, which lead to a firm foundation in household life. we call utana, which means something like uh, initiative or uh, skillfulness, skillful effort. Utana. Uh, araka, which means something like protection or prudence, being careful with your resources, making sure you've got your, your house and your insurance and all that. And uh, kalyanamitta, which means just uh, worthy companions. People are not going to let you down. People don't abuse, lie, cheat. And samajiwa, which means something like balanced livelihood. Which means you don't overspend, but at the same time you're not stingy. And uh, so this, what is this? Is it spiritual or what? Yeah. Well, Buddha definitely sees this as, as advice that he gave. And we can see actually it does point to some pretty important foundational principles, both internal, one's own integrity, and external, what we do, who we associate with. It's always the case that uh, 
what we do has to be bounded on it has to be founded on um, morality cause and effect skillful karma and uh, putting forth effort and initiative in a skillful way cause and effect gives rise to skillful effects mm. a friend of mine who was uh, uh, in business and he was uh, he decided that his business would always be completely honest. There would be no uh, uh, duplicity or special offers where you could kind of fiddle things a bit <laughs> in terms of taxes or concessions or regulations. He said, just play it absolutely straight. And uh, first of all, his business kind of dropped a little bit because he wasn't doing things on such a cost-cutting basis. But then, along with that, when people recognize this is someone who, when they said they would do it, actually did it. When they said they do something in two weeks' time, they actually did it in two weeks' time. And it wasn't a bodged job. And then what he did was quality, and it did, there was no skimping in it. Realize this is someone you can trust in, someone who's integrity. And so they, he has his business then, you know, benefited from that. And of course, his own mind states benefited. So it wasn't that, you know, the two go together. If you're doing good deeds, if you're dealing straight, if you're dealing with, with, uh, in a straightforward, honest way, then you don't have any duplicity, you don't have any regrets, you don't have any worries, you don't have this sense of trying to cover up what you're doing. So his mind was straight and clear, he didn't have to say things that weren't true. Hmm. So it wasn't, you know, is that spiritual or what? Well, it has effects in both planes. You could say the world, your material sense, as well as we could say the internal spiritual sense. So that's how Dhamma is holistic. One, you know, two affect each other. Two don't are not separate. You can't separate the two. How you act internally can't be separate from how you act externally. It's also um, a key factor, it's very often mentioned for householders and, and gone forth people, is a sense of relationship. So it's always uh, recommended that you don't associate with foolish people, with people who lie, steal, drink, uh, you know, who you can't trust, who take you into bad ways, into gambling or losing your money or wasting your time. You don't associate, you don't hang out, you don't stay with, you don't live long with those kinds of people. You seek people who you f- can give you support, can, can model values that you will be life-sustaining and will keep your own mind pure. You look to associate with those people. To such an extent, the Buddha said, if you can't find someone wise to associate with, it's better not to associate with anyone. <laughs> he said, if you can just find one... You know, that's good, that's probably good enough. Something that models externally what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, similarly in this Samana life, you look for Kalyanamita, admirable, worthy companions. Mm. Yeah. And that's the way we, we, why we live as Sangha. We tend to, tend to try to model, encourage, correct, train, you know, uh, also get the sense of, 
uh, I work for my welfare, but my welfare is not separate from the welfare of others. So the encouragement with the monastic training is to to share what one has with one's fellow summoners, even if it's just the contents of your alms bowl. So that when you go for the alms round, you make sure you look into what's there and what's offered, and you're trying to think, well, make sure there's enough for my fellow summoners or the people who live here. You know, I don't want to take more than my share. Even if it means perhaps I'll go without a little. Something I rather fancy, I'll put it aside so that other people can have it. This is the way we train, because then you, your mind has that width to it, that breadth to it, that holistic sense. And uh, you benefit from it, you know, from just having a, a wider span of, of concern than just this self-view all the time, which is so demanding and essentially unfulfilling. So external factors, then the Buddha says, well, you know, when you uh, cultivate, you should consider for a householder, you know, looking after your friends, companions, your spouse, wife, husband, your friend, your children. Make sure you, you spread your wealth and make sure you safeguard your wealth against getting lost or squandered. Put forth the effort, protect, be prudent, develop skillful friendships, uh, live a balanced life. So these are, you could say, you know, quite pract- you know, practical, pragmatic, almost mundane. But the Buddha didn't waste his time teaching things that he was thought was not conducive to Nibbana. You know, so why did he teach it? If it obviously, you know, this is part. This is the foundation. This is the foundation, and in these foundational principles, you see the same qualities that you continue to develop, train yourself in, train your attitudes in, train your ways of considering in, train your train your verbal actions in, train your thinking in. And it's through that that the mind begins to let go of this self-obsession, this craving, this bhava-tanha, craving to be something, sense-desire, karma-tanha, we bhava-tanha, craving to get out, to avoid, to not be, not have to take things on. It starts to come out of that. And you can't just do that for like for one hour a day and then go back to the <laughs> craving again. You've got to do it. You know, you train the mind in one way, internally, externally, when stillness in action. You train it in one way. That's the way you get the results. It's a thorough, holistic approach rather than a a one-shot retreat technique, meditation period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uttana, uh, initiative or skillful effort aroused, looking at effort that's applied with, with intelligence and wisdom, seeing where you can develop what needs to be done. And this is a, a, a quite a um, foundational principle in forest monasteries in particular, where you really have to be pretty much on the ball. 
You know, there's not not a lot of books teaching you how to get through the day, but you've got to watch out for um, centipedes, snakes, um, ants, which have got ferocious bites. You stand on it, you clumsily walking around, drifting off in daydreams, and walk into a trail of soldier ants. You certainly wakes you up. <laughs> you know, they have this thing called the the ant dance. You can see the people jumping up and down in the forest. It generally means they're being bitten by ants because they were stumbling around thinking about something. So you had to develop that sense of being alert, you know, attentive. There's not a you know a manual. You've got to wait, make your way through the forest. You have to learn to live and get on with other creatures and how to protect your kuti. So you have water around it. You have to keep the water channels clean and clear so the ants don't get in. You have to keep uh, the... the uh, latrines clear so that the snakes don't live, frogs don't get in if the frogs live there the snakes are going to get in to hunt the frogs and when you stumble into the lavatory in the middle of the night you find there's a cobra there <laughs> and that certainly wakes you up so you know you have to develop that sense of um, skillful effort and thinking things through not to be drifting around in a daydream or preoccupied with thoughts, keep your eyes open to what's going on. I was recently looking at some of the uh, photographs they sent me of the big building project, some of the one of the recent building projects at Wat Panana Chat. They ripped down the old meeting hall, Sala, uh, which had been there since 1976, and they built a new one. And all this this large, much bigger than this, or considerably bigger than this, it's, you know, maybe a third again as big and taller. And uh, the building is that there's no plans, no building plans. The only plans they did was they had a piece of paper, they put 48 holes on it, dot, dots on it to define where the building was going to be. That was the only plans, building plans. <laughs> the rest of it, it was all in Lumpur Liam's head. And he got it all in his mind what he's going to do. And uh, no no planning commission, no building regulations, no health and safety, no protective equipment. <laughs> it's just you, you just go there and people start digging holes and he says, we'll dig a hole there and dig a hole there and they just start doing it and putting up some scaffolding and people climb up and down. you just got to watch what you're doing. Uh, because uh, there's no safety equipment. You, know, you fall off the scaffolding. That's called karma. <laughs> you weren't attentive, were you? <laughs> you know, if a, somebody's building something above your head and a brick falls down, you've got to be careful, be watchful what's going on. So it means you have to develop a lot of uh, alertness, initiative. And, and also applied effort. How are we going to do this? I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the uh, hallmarks of um, these the forest monasteries. <clears throat> so I found that very helpful. I was, was my upbringing very much in school, university, up in my head. You know, a lot of thinking, complex thinking, ideas, ideologies, and then coming down to 
Chithurst in 1979. Suddenly in this kind of old, half-derelict, semi-ruined house, you know, in a university degree in literature isn't really going to do you much good when it comes around to fixing a roof or, or um, you know, dealing with the no the floors caving in. The wood house was so rotten that there was only one room that we could meet in. We used to meet in the, what's now the reception room. There was no heat, so we just had one open fire. You know, a chestnut fire, which would spit sparks onto the carpet or onto anybody who sat too close to it. So one half of you got kind of burnt and blistered. The other half of your body was freezing. And uh, we just had to figure out how to do it. Nobody had any professional skills. We just did it. Work it out. Start to ask around. Start to learn. And that was the that was the training. You know? Not that you're becoming a builder, but you're learning to look, think clearly, take initiative, try things out, be patient. Um, Look out for people who know more than you. Get their, get their understanding. Get their advice. Practice it. See cause and effect. Take note. You know. So 79, and 85, no 80, 81, to go to, up to Harnham, do the same thing all over again with another place, another ruined house, an old ruined house up in Northumberland with no heat. One, one cold water tap. Um, just, you know. <laughs> and how do you, fixing that up? Not knowing what to do. Working with that. Then to Amrawaddy. After 79, 81, then 84. Third monastery, Amrawaddy. Another situation, same thing, freezing cold. <laughs> so, uh, that was at 84th, and they, uh, just how to get through rebuilding Amrawaddy. So, and then came back here in 92, and we started building this, Sala, Dharma Hall, rebuilding the, you know, continuing to build the monastery here. It's 25 years on building sites. It was a lot of my monastic practice. I never really wanted to be a builder. <laughs> You know, so the noise, the clattering, the confusion, the opinions. You know, you to work through it. And you develop something. You develop a sense of patience, persistent effort. I mean, I'm don't glad it's over. For me, it's over. I don't want to do any more. <laughs> but uh, there's something one learns from it. How to, how to get on. How to get it done. How to look out to how things can be done. And there's a practice there. So that when you come to meditate, it's pretty much the same thing. You have to develop initiative, persistent effort. Sometimes we look for some system that can do the practice, just this, 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 six points, ten points. No system is going to work without person initiative because, I mean, there are systems and yeah, they've all got something good to say. What we recognize is that our karma 
is not a system. Our karma, our own personal makeup, our personal profile, what we bring into the meditation, is definitely not linear, nicely lined up, systematic processes. It's chaotic. You know, it's it's got strengths and weaknesses and pieces we don't know and pieces we don't want to know and um, weak spots. It's like a it's like a derelict building. <laughs> you know, it's like coming into another house that it's all rotten floors and the hole in the roof and you know how do you fix this? You know, it's not a nice kind of clean sheet you start out with. So then you go, well, I don't know. Well, try this, try that. Try some mindfulness of breathing. Get your posture straight. Work with that. Look at what other people are doing. Take advice. See what works for you. What about the qualities of kindness? Are you remembering that? You know, it's a holistic approach where you keep trying this, trying that, working with it, looking around. That's initiative and that's persistent effort. It's not just a blind, dogged push. It's the skill of discernment, wise attention, considered thinking, looking, you know, getting advice from other people, uh, being patient with it, knowing when the time to, to, to apply, not just to patiently bear with, but to deliberately effect some changes. And we all have things we need to, that are particular, we need to develop. So I found it helpful after a few years to start to look more into studying the scriptures. I didn't do that for about five or six years or so. I didn't, I just basically couldn't, couldn't take on any more than what I was already doing, just building. <laughs> And trying to uh, keep, keep, you know, get the moral precepts down, the renunciation down, and just be able to sustain some sort of meditation practice. Then, after about five, six, seven years, done to look more into the scriptures, and oh, that makes sense. That's interesting. That's good advice. Pick that up. What is that pointing to? Using, you know, developing that sense of, you know, widening your resources. Bringing that into it, then what? Do you, how much can you use? What do you need to use right now? Yeah, so, so this sense of wise initiative is 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 uh, an absolute necessity for samadhi, for concentration, for certainly for liberation, and so you. Bring that flavour into the life. When we uh, sit in a hall like this, very much the sense of a unified form. But of course, we know actually we're all very different. And uh, you know, rather than just expecting everybody to be doing exactly the same and finding the same kind of inspiration and the same difficulties and the same things they feel strong with and the same things they feel confused by. Rising, essentially, you've got to work it out for yourself. And there's that um, encouragement and to develop initiative. With Tudong, sometimes people go on these Tudong walks, and they're great occasions of developing initiative. How to, you know, 
get, you know, to figure out where to go, how to train your body, how to sustain effort, how to uh, keep trying to keep yourself dry and warm, how to look at what you can take with you so that you're not taking so much stuff that it breaks your back to carry it, and yet enough stuff to keep you basically warm and dry and clean if you can. That's quite a skill in itself. And then how to go for arms round, where to where to stand or walk, you know, and, and so on. These are things you just gotta, you know, find out. It makes the mind quick, sharp, intelligent. Prudence or protection and uraka, this quality of not allowing what you've what you've developed, not allowing it to be ruined, not letting it leak away. And in the advice to a uh, to a businessman, it's a sense of making sure that what you've you know your earnings are carefully stored away; they're not going to get stolen. And if you've reaped a harvest, you make sure it's not going to get eaten by the rats and the roaches. Yeah. If you built a house, you make sure it's not going to get washed away by a flood or the or, or the roof blown off by the wind. You know, that sense of that. And you can look at that principle and say, well, how do you do that also internally so that your Dhamma practice doesn't get eaten away? Doesn't get, you know, so you, you actually this generally means most people will restraint. It's like you put a protection around your Dhamma practice. You're not getting swept away with too many duties. You're not getting too drawn out in all the options and conceptual proliferations of things you could do, places you could go, things you could think about, stuff you could read, stuff you could look at, gossip, chat, internet, newspapers. This is just going to erode the sense of simplicity, clarity and firmness building in meditation just gets washed away doesn't it yeah so how do you protect the mind from being eaten up then restraint is one important thing why is reflection why is reflection looking at how your mind works what sustains its quest, what sustains its, its aspiration is one-pointedness on purity and freedom. What sustains that one-pointedness? How that one-pointedness can be blunted? And in this term, I don't mean one-pointedness being your, your attention is just focused on one particular sensation. It means you have one aim that you keep remembering every day. What's the overriding aim? It's for diminishing stress and suffering, for liberating oneself from stress and suffering. And you keep that one aim continually in mind. So in this way, you protect the mind from getting lost in 20 different aims, pursuits, side, side tracks, Things we could do. As human beings, there are many things we could do. Many things that human beings do do. Pursuits, possibilities. And yet you think, does this support liberation or not? And you really look 
And the Buddha doesn't say what those are because you have to know for yourself. There's not a set piece. You could say basically that uh, clinging doesn't support it, uh, liberation. You can say that um, self-view doesn't support it. You can say that getting lost in sensuality doesn't support it. But whether you need to walk, stand, change your, change where you live, take up a job, put down a job, you know, take up a particular form of practice or relax that form of practice, that's you've got to see for yourself what prote- protects the mind and keeps it aiming for liberation. Sometimes it's the case that the place you're practicing is just becoming too difficult and unsuitable, then it's suitable to change. But at the same time, if you just have that attitude alone in mind, you get restless. Shift here, shift there, shift here, shift. So it's really knowing your mind, its weaknesses and its strengths, and protecting it from its its ignorance, its, its craving. The responsibility to do that. And one way that we often... Uh, Reinforce that is recognizing every day, the Buddha said, one form of practice that you can't do too much of. There's one form of reflection you can't do too much of, this reflection on death. He said, this one, you, you can't overdo this. Such that if you're, you should, in other words, if somebody said, we should do it three times a day, he says, well, it's better than nothing, but and eventually somebody said, well, if I do it every in-breath and every out-breath, he said, that's, that's good, that's about it, that's the standard, that's a good standard. <laughs> yeah. So a strong point's being made there, you know. It's like every, this is the last, every in-breath is the last, every out-breath is the first and the last. Do it thoroughly, do it completely. And that gives us one-pointedness, doesn't it? There's no future. Yeah. And you see how the mind loses its firmness and its decisiveness and its balance by what I could, what I should, what I might, what might happen, what I could be, what they might, what will, what I won't, where will I be, just, you know, what's it doing? So I say, okay, so bear in mind, this may be the last day, this may be the last hour, what's important now? Bring the mind back, restrain it, make it attend to the currents and tides of agitation or worry or that are, that are pressing it now. Protect it. Don't let it follow those. So these are all, you know, mindfulness, recollection of death sounds like a rather grim topic, but it's a medicine. And some medicines have bitter flavors to them. But the aim of it is a purgative, to clear the mind of confusion, of uh, too much history. Having too much history is a kind of disease. (laughs) Too much past, too much future. It's a disease. (laughs) If you're too much past, you're always wondering, well, I was this, I never was this, I always did that. They did this to me. She never did that to me. He was always like that to me. And when I was this, I did this, and that was terrible. And this is like overdosing on the past. Doesn't do you any good. Overdosing on the future. What well, I could be, what I should be, what she is, what he is, what they would be, what I could go. Overdosing on the future. 
death is the medicine. <laughs> it means whatever you've done in the past, it's over. <laughs> whatever you're going to do in the future hasn't happened, you know, now. So that's, that's kind of restraining, protecting the mind from these powerful uh, flows that it, it just continually unravels in. Unravels, its energy just continually unravels in these outflows of time, place, fear, desire, agitation, worry. You're just kind of pulling it back. Wise companions, Kalyanamitta, is in, in terms of uh, one's relationships, intimate, professional, educational, whatever it is. This uh, worthy, and just being realizing that uh, you know, with any kind of re- relational experience, you have to keep looking at your choice, how much you need, and uh, because often relationships can be whereby we almost ask someone else to take responsibility for us. So we lean on each other. Or you want someone to lean on. That is not responsible. Mm. So you want relationships where there's a, there can be uh, something you can learn. You don't have to be small. You don't have to be weak. You don't have to carry someone. But you can, you know, at times you can carry their weight at times they carry your weight. It's mutual. Yeah. And we continually respect each other's integrity. And sometimes in uh, relationship, the word, you know, love and affection can lose, in the way we consider it, to lose a sense of respect. Respect for ourselves, respect for the other. So we're not just using someone else to be a prop for us, but someone we can ask for help from, we cannot want to support, we'll stand with them, they will stand with us when the times are bad. And someone who's actually doing much more than just, just uh, you know, being, being uh, another person, but someone who actually is bringing forth the kind of values, demonstrating them, presenting them, living them out, that we can say, oh, that's good, I can learn something there. I can learn something there about persistence or diligence or forgiveness or whatever it is. Because this is really the book that we learn from. We start learning from it, you know, as soon as we're born. In a way, we hardly even have an option. It's so, we're so geared to doing that consciously or unconsciously in, in sensing others in mirroring others, in looking at how others do it, where other people get fortune or misfortune, where other people get strong or weak, made bright or confused. That's something that we, something that does quite instinctively. This is how the tradition, one important element of this whole Dhamma tradition has come down. Part of it's come down in the letter, you know, but remember, the letter itself was originally that which was recited through these 
human beings. The human being is the transmission. The lived out embodiment is really the tradition of the Dhamma. You couldn't recreate it just from words and paper. This is why it's so precious to have a, a, a Sangha, you know, that still carries on from teacher to disciple, from preceptor to ordainee, you know, the sense of living it out, living together, embodying, caring for each other, listening to each other, working with each other, supporting each other as human beings. That, that Kalyanamita. And, uh, that is what, uh, sustains the life. The human being is basically the book, the most important book that we study. So when you look at that, look at who's in your library, in your living library. Check it out. Make choices. Some of them are kind of a light, pleasant read, okay. <laughs> but you don't want, <laughs> they don't have necessarily all profound, you know, earth-shaking literature, but at least they're pleasant, admirable, useful, uh, helpful. They don't, don't give you bad information. They don't give you nightmares. And if you just have one book, that's sensible and wise, maybe that's better than nothing, better than a load of trash. Yeah. The Kalyan is very important, whatever one's doing. And balanced, balanced livelihood. So for the householder, that's a sense of using the resources with prudence, how much you spend, how much you save, how much you give away. And part of balanced livelihood is apportioning how much you want to give. So giving away was, in time of the Buddha, was considered a normal aspect of what Dharma is about. It's always Dharma is, again, how this whole tradition has kept going. It's a Dharma, it's a generosity culture. It's always been given, supported by people making offerings, Teachings freely given, monasteries always free, books free, um, a very important principle. Um, and it goes back to the fundamental understanding that the law of the cosmos, that the Dhamma itself, part of being a human being is to what makes us proper and fine and thorough and feeling balanced is our ability to offer, to give in proportion just as part of a normal, healthy way of living. And the Buddha says, well, look at, you know, make sure you've got enough for yourself, uh, for you cover your needs, your immediate kindred, and then look at people you want to, worthy people you want to offer something to. And he says, you know, summoners, contemplatives, Brahmins, charities, some, you know, it's not just even... Buddhist, but, but uh, that whole culture, that's what he inherited, a culture that, that established that as being what a human being does. They're 15%, they're 10%, whatever it is, of their earnings. They say, well, let's put that aside to give to a worthy cause. Hmm? 
And so balanced living. <coughs> so it's not an obsessive uh, acquisition of uh, goods or looking continually at what one has for oneself. There's always that sense of how does it balance out with the larger sphere of what of, of human beings or you could say even of cre- animals, creatures, other creatures that you want to share your, your life, you do share your life with. So generosity. And uh, um, the sense of looking. So even for the renunciants, the Buddha said, well, you know, um, this is not an ascetic tradition. This is not see who can live on the least, see how tight you can play it, but make sure you have adequate robes, make sure you get enough food, uh, make sure you have the medicines, uh, look for a proper support. A shelter enough to sit in, enough to lie down in. This is what I recommend. And then you could keep adjusting that. So when he found out people were uh, still feeling ill, he'd say, "Well, I allow, I allow you congee, which is some kind of form of rice porridge in the morning, which <laughs> tradition still doing. <laughs> 2,500 years, we changed it from rice to oats, but <laughs> so it's not, you know." The Buddha saying, I do this myself, I thoroughly recommend this. So it wasn't how tight can you play it, but just what's balanced. He, a lot of the Vinaya rules are deal with all the medicines that uh, you could use. And I guess in the forests of India, there were all kinds of fruits and berries and roots and leaves and things that people make concoctions of. And the Buddha said, oh, details of... Um, what kind of roots and leaves and bark and things you could use for medicine. So the Buddha training is very much a looking at what's necessary. Um, robes, medicines, food, shelter. Modest enough, but definitely covering that area. So when you look into your own you know, household life, what's really necessary. What's helpful? Realizing that uh, possessions tend to possess us rather than the other way around. You know, you find the car, you're servicing the car, you're taking it to the to the mechanics again, you're paying the road tax, uh, you're paying the petrol. Uh, you're paying the insurance so the car you're giving like a fifth of your earnings is being given to this car <laughs> to, to support the car then after five years you've got to get a new one ten years you've got to get a new one then it, and it eventually has an accident you've got to get another, more insurance policy thinking, hmm how much do I need this thing so people now are developing things like carpools whereby one person has a car and we will agree, well, you can use it on Tuesdays or we'll share it. Uh, or you're going somewhere, you say, well, does anybody else want to lift a ride into, into town or into the monastery? Yeah. So looking at resources like this, and this is all part of what we call Dharma practice. So that... In the same light, when you apply that to your meditation, you realize you have so much energy. 
so much uh, strength, so much vitality. Um, how do you want to spend that that resource? How do you want to spend that resource? Some of it's going to be on just keeping yourself tidy, doing what you need to do in terms of your duties, supporting your friends and relatives, supporting your kalyanamita, your teachers, your students, and so forth. And then you want to have enough left so that you can do, use that for the meditation, looking at balancing the way one lives. And we look at the whole picture. Again, the recollection on death really helps to... to uh, make it a thorough recollection because the only thing that uh, when you start to look at things like your car and your house, your relatives and so forth and then you put the recollection of death in into that, those, that's all that you're going, to be lo- you're going to be losing all of that and you get, you know, the first one that you lose is the immaterial possessions which you do need to an extent more important than that is the people. These are the ones who are going to look after you when you're falling apart. So that's more valuable than the, the carpet or the painting or the television set. That's not going to look after you when you're down. So you put more effort into supporting the people because these are the ones who are going to stand by you when you're having a difficult time or when you're sick or ill. And then, it, then you still want to have enough energy left to realize that even when other people can't help you, then your own mind is your last resource. That's the one you really want to keep some energy back for, some time back for, some to put attention into developing that because that's your last resource. That's the only resource, finally, that takes you through that gateway of death skillfully. Yeah. That's even where your friends have to say, well, that's as far as we can take you. You know, We can support your body. We can't support your mind. You, that's where you're going to do that for. So when you look at balanced livelihood, you say, are you making sure that your livelihood is doing that which really supports your life? And your life is much more than just the requisites and the possessions and uh, you know the ups and downs of all that. Your life essentially must include that which which stands up in the light of death, because life is about death. Life is not separate from death. There's nobody alive who doesn't die, who will not die. Life is inseparable from death. Therefore, we consider how to live our life. We have to include death as part of it. How do we do our dying properly? And uh, because it's such a, a topic that often people just don't want to know about or think about, you need to bring it back, bring, keep bringing it back every day. And you say, well, okay. Then this is this is our work, making the mind so it's firm, so it touches into that which is not of this world, that which is not corporeal, that which is not of the senses. Yeah, it touches into it begins to work through the fears and the agitation, resistance to pain, um, coming out of the sense of self. So making a firm foundation for the mind to realize and abide in the deathless. Livelihood, balanced livelihood, should always include that point, that aim. Because whatever else one does in one's life, the one sure thing about it, absolutely sure, is that we're going to die. The rest of it is just details. Mm -hmm.
So when it's whole, we see things holistically, we don't get lost in the details of the script. We see the whole picture. And we learn to live and train in terms of Dhamma. Dhamma is the only thing that includes the whole picture. So offer this for your reflection.